Welcome to Axview. Today joining me is Joseph Lorenzini, who will be uh, obtaining a Bachelor's of Electrical Engineering from the University of Illinois. He's also a political enthusiast and has actually lobbied Congress before for increased funding in STEM fields. Today he will join me in uh, analyzing what has fostered political polarization within the United States, uh, how that's been sustained over the past few decades, and how we can go about fixing it. So thank you for joining me, Joe. It's great to be here, Tim. Uh, so on that question, where do you think political polarization began in the United States? Has it been something that's always been present like throughout, or do you see it as increasingly present in recent elections or recent years? I would definitely say that it has increased more in recent years. You can especially look at the presidential elections and the swing from one party to another. It used to be, go back to the elections of, say, LBJ and Reagan. It used to be, if there was a fairly popular president or a very unpopular opponent, you could have a large landslide against the opponent and, or one side or the other. But nowadays, we're seeing a very small set of states that will actually switch parties. The amount of states that are decided by 5% or less have actually decreased in the past 20 years or so. So right. just by looking at those maps alone, you can see just how stable the map has really become. Right, because I believe uh, Ronald Reagan was like the last uh, person who won, I think, 49 or 48 states. 49 uh, and 84, that's right. Yeah, and that just would not happen anymore, where today we're looking at swing states of around 7 to 10, uh, mm -hmm. with at least 40 states being decided no matter who's running. Uh, right. And so that just shows that the people in every state are truly coalescing around parties instead of whoever runs that election. Because mm -hmm. uh, as you saw in like the 60s, uh, JFK won... Uh, Illinois, and it was a battle over who would win yes. Illinois, which is today unheard of. Illinois is solidly blue. No one would ever expect it to change. Uh, so would you, where do you say that, what election or what year do you think that polarization started to, be, to begin? I would say sometime around in the 90s, if there's not a particular year, particular... But if you just look at Bill Clinton's first election, there was there was a, still a, a landslide of sorts of states, but from there it just began to decrease. Right, um, and now you you would never expect an election to go uh, have a popular vote difference of a few percentage points. That's right. Now it's always like. It's considered now a landslide election if you get like more than 53% of the vote, which mm -hmm. is like, still, that means like 47% still voted against you. Right. Uh, and what do you think began that process? Was, is there something that began to exist in the 90s that started that? It's really hard to say. There are, there's a lot of speculation. One of the uh, most... Uh, obvious culprits is the media today. You see a lot of polarizing media on TV and especially with the rise of the internet at the time people would just look at views that 
they had already agreed with, and there wouldn't be as much broad overreach for, you know, say one news source to reach a whole swath of people. A lot of people, you could just look at the world today and see, oh, you're just agreeing with the this particular news source, or you only like this page on Facebook. You only get your news from one outlet with one view, and because of that, people are very cautious or even vehemently against reaching across the aisle to other people's views. Because they're only ever exposed to that one side. Whereas I think before maybe the 80s, there were only news stations that covered, you know, had one hour of news coverage and they discussed all the news pretty unbiasedly. You had the, like the, uh, the Walter Cronkites of the world. Mm And That's now, right. now starting in the '80s, you had Fox News pop up, CNN. Uh, I'm not sure when MSNBC started, but those major three networks, which ones considered definitely liberal, ones moderate in a sense. Some people still call CNN the Clinton News Network. I don't yeah. know the, the merit for that, but uh, and then there's also Fox News, which is pretty uh, agreed upon as the conservative news source. And so what that does is, yeah, it leaves people just exposed to what they want to hear. And I think not only is it that you're being only exposed to one side, is that these news networks are demonizing the other side. Mm-hmm. And that's what the, the problem is, is not only are you only learning one side of the story, but you're hearing that the other side is un-American, unpatriotic, or um, socialists, or what have you and that's I think another issue there is that uh, I think there's some surveys that ask uh, I I cited this in my first episode is that uh, parents are now more disappointed when their their offspring marry someone of the opposite party that's right it's like that's it's a higher rate than ever of that like disappointment that uh, a parent would hate to have a their democratic son marrying a republican or vice versa which is just like it's mind blowing that we we look down at the other party now and there's a there's a sociological reason for that i believe the fact that there's a lot more geographic sorting of people today that as opposed to having say a lot of democrats republicans in one town you'll have today a lot of Democrats in the city and these people have the same worldview and agree. Well, out in the country and in the rural areas, you'll have a lot of Republicans. And because of that, people who, when they identify people who are similar to them, they also see them as the same political party. So there's almost now a more stark divide within American society because of that. We're seeing, you know, a Republican America versus a more Democrat America. And that goes back to the idea of, you know, the more polarized states, how you identify people in your own state almost as people with your own party. Yeah, I think, and I've seen some research saying that even, like, in a red state, it's not that everyone's Republican, but, like, the liberals that do exist there are not as liberal as, let's say, New York liberals or... Mm -hmm. New York Republicans are not as Republican as, you know, uh, uh, an Alabama Republican. Right. But there's still this sorting that happens where, you, you, like, 
it's an interesting point that you bring up that not only in our media but now in our actual uh, geographic location we're being surrounded by people of just our own opinions and that further entrenches this ideology in us right that uh, I think how did that how did that happen why well how did this geographic sorting occur it's just something that developed over time that people want to like cluster around people like them yeah I I don't know off the top of my head I think I've read stories about how there it has to do with people either moving jobs more or less often than they have in the past but there's definitely a, a large sociological phenomenon behind it I also think uh, I think the highly educated also probably cluster in city areas and uh, this isn't a subjective point. It's objective that the highly educated are more liberal. Right. Who knows if it's the education that makes them liberal or liberals just choose greater levels of education. Uh, but I think that goes into saying that they, those people with higher education levels go to big cities to get you know these big important jobs. And then we end up with more liberals clustered together. And then leaving more conservatives in rural areas. So not only do we not like each other anymore across the aisle, but we actually have political effects occurring because of this. That um, you think, yeah, Congress is not even willing to work with each other anymore. Right. That uh, like there were. There were stories passed around right after Barack Obama's inauguration that Republicans basically told the White House, do not expect any cooperation from us for the next two years because uh, we're going to get back the Congress in 2010. And they did. I, I mean, at least the House went to the, uh, the Republicans in 2010 in, in a wave. Um, but interestingly is that, like... Uh, a lot of people blame them as the party of no, at least in those years. But the Republicans, in their messaging, said, we're doing this because of your treatment of us in 2006 to 2008. So apparently, I wasn't as involved in politics back then, but uh, they were accusing Democrats of stiff-arming them from 2006 to 2008. So it builds up this, like, this polarization of... of parties that it doesn't result in anything being done for the American people. Right. Yeah, there's no doubt that people today are very angry at the government. And But to put some statistics on that, uh, Congress back in 2014 had an 11% approval rating, obviously very low, but yet 96.4% of incumbent lawmakers were re-elected. And that's just baffling to think that you know, we hate Congress, but we're going to keep electing them anyways. Do you think that's due to polarization or due to this, like, cognitive bias that, well, it's not my lawmaker? Yeah, there is almost something behind that, too, because or is it most just people a have approval ratings of their own lawmakers that they think that they're doing a good job. Right. Or, is, or it could be just, you know, 
I agree with the party ID of my own elected official, and it must be the other party that's that's stiff-arming us or not allowing us to get anything done. Right. Um, and yeah, that's it's truly just debilitating government processes that if we can't even talk about each other or we, and then the media perpetuates that and I think uh, the media plays into that because the media is based on ratings it wants that conflict and so when you are running stories of you know Republicans hating on Democrats or vice versa it makes for good news but it doesn't make for good political progress. Not at all. So, uh, I think, like, I've always thought of how, how do we reshape the media to have a better role in this? Do you have, like, any ideas of how we could demand a better media? That's If, if things are going to be based on ratings because money exists and that's, you know, advertisements and all of that, that whole economic system of media is not going away. How do we fix this? One idea in the past that's been thrust around is that every there should be a requirement for every media source to have uh, someone from both sides of the issue to discuss it. But we also see, you know, if just look at CNN, they'll have plenty of panelists, but all it does is just succumb to yelling and people talking about their talking points and there's not really much discussion at all. I just from a pure economic incentive standpoint, there's not really much for media to change. I think the what I'm seeing the best we could do right now is to really convince people to seek out the other side. Let them know that you're definitely better off and we're all better off if we reach across to the other side's point of view and just see where they're coming from. And at the very least, try to find some kind of middle ground that we all can come to. So, I mean, you see it as more of a, a needed cultural change. Yes. That we need to change this, this psychology of the other side must be evil because they disagree with me. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think it goes to show that, like, uh, surveys showed that um, partisans only trust their own news source. They'll say, like, they'll ask conservatives, uh, like, of all these news organizations listed, which one do you trust? And they'll only put, trust Fox News. Um, but interestingly, like, I don't want to be partisan about it, but liberals will trust more news sources than just, like, MSNBC, for instance. But then maybe the Republican comeback is that, well, because the mainstream media is liberal. Do you, do you see evidence for that, that... Like those, like not and, and not CNN, not MSNBC, but the uh, more basic cable news channels like ABC, NBC. Do you see evidence for them being biased? There have been studies that have shown that more people who go into media are have more liberal leanings, but there's been it's very hard to objectify or find any evidence of a more liberal leaning media because of that and some would argue that because you you know the liberals would say conservatives are just angry at the mainstream media because they're not doing conservative talking points while conservatives will say 
hey, you just look at this study, there's more liberals in the media, therefore there must be a liberal bias there. And because there's really no way to objectify that, it's this becomes a very distrusting environment because of that. Yeah, and I think though there's a there is some evidence to show how like Fox News affects uh, partisanship because uh, there have been some studies that showed when uh, Fox News originally started coming out and people started ga- getting cable that those areas of the country suddenly started voting more conservative. So there was like there's an actual effect there, the Fox News effect that I've studied in political uh, classes that they have this media has an effect um, and then it starts to yeah, breed this uh, polarization that we only trust one news source will only ever you know we're, we're going to demonize the other side we're not going to listen to the other side and then I also think that when even our MSNBC has on conservatives or Fox has on liberals they hire people that are just going to be there to fight that don't want to have actual discussion or they're, they're going to get yelled at by the five other opposite party people on the news station as well. So it doesn't uh, result in any civil dialogue. That's right. It's once again, it goes back to the ratings. They want the conflict rather than the discussion. Yeah. And that's why like, I, I pride myself on having a podcast that's not based in ratings, but it's like as soon as any form of media like this gets picked up by sponsors or media, it starts to be influenced by that, that we need to, you know, focus on getting the, the highest amount of listens or the highest amount of clicks or, or retweets or whatever. And so you, you start posting more sensationalist articles. Uh, or, you know, having more sensationalist, uh, controversial discussions. Uh, But uh, that doesn't result in what we need media to do. And so I think, like you said, we have to demand better media. Yes. And at the end of the day, every media outlet is going to be biased in one form or another because we humans are biased. Right. You and I are biased. Are going to have some biases in this talk. Right. But what you can do is, one, try to find the other side of the source. And two, more importantly, what I like to do is find sources that will acknowledge their own bias, but try to find either the most objective way possible of identifying the news or acknowledging the other side of that. I think but, what helps in that is always like citing sources and... Uh, it's not just about bias, but about like telling the truth. That if a news source is actually lying or just putting out uh, a misrepresentation of data, that they'll skew data tables or anything to fit their agenda. By so it's like being, I think, intellectually honest through bias. Bias is the most important thing. That like, of course, we're going to have bias. I will have. I I say. In, I'll always have a coverage bias. I will only, you know, maybe post certain articles or discuss certain topics when the other side of the media that is discussing, you know, um, more so about Hillary Clinton's emails or if Barack Obama wasn't born here or 
uh, or more serious topics of criticizing Barack Obama's economy or something like that more so than I will. But even through my bias, as long as I'm being intellectually honest, citing my sources and not trying to intentionally skew data or lead people astray, then I think that's, that's the best form of media that we're going to get and that we need uh, to have these civil discussions. Um, and yeah, the, the very political system that we've created in the United States, I think, allows for this, like having two parties, I think, creates this psychology of black and white, right? Like having a, having an election where it's like you walk into the ballot box and it's either left or right, you're, you're, you're not given the chance to have nuance. Whereas, do you see like polarization less in other countries that have more parties? In other countries, you'll see it's hard. This there won't be as much polarization. You'll definitely see some more swing seats, and that definitely has its merits to it because you know you have more choice, and you know typically we think that the more choice we have, the more the better options we have. But then the issue with that is when you have more parties, it's from a pure logistical standpoint, it's hard to find a, get a governing body trying to get a majority. Sometimes the parties will be split and no one can get a majority trying to find that coalition. There are definite issues behind having multiple parties. But on the whole, I think it's something we need to definitely acknowledge having more options. Right, that, because, yeah, just, it makes us lazy in having to choose between just two parties instead of many. But do you see a possible future for third parties in the United States, a realistic future? Not with the system we have set up now. We'd have to make some definite changes. Like changing to proportional representation or something like that? Proportional representation. There's just one we have system set up today that could actually work. It's called a nonpartisan blanket primary. You might have also heard of it as a top two primary or a jungle primary. Essentially what it is when voters go vote for the primary as opposed to having a, say, Republican ballot or a Democrat ballot, It'll just be a ballot of everyone running, and you'll vote for. Okay, I want, I want my representative to be this person. So, say you're a Democrat, vote for the Democrat. For a Republican, you could vote Republican. And then, after the primaries are over, they'll take the top two finishers, and then they'll move on to general election. And that's most of the time when you have split communities, it'll just be Democrat, Republican. But sometimes when you have places, take California, for instance, they have this system set up. And for the Senate this year, they actually have two Democrats up for their Senate election, because enough people voted that brought two Democrats up for the winner. So we could see this possibly using, let's say that instead of two Democrats, California possibly had a Democrat and a Green Party nominee up for the Senate. Or Louisiana also uses this system, so they could possibly have a Republican and a Libertarian. 
if we were to adopt the system, I could definitely see a better way of being accessible to third parties. Yeah, and I think uh, the argument against like voting third party in this election uh, would be that you can't really just have one person leading the country of a party when like there's no infrastructure for that party throughout the rest of the country. <laughs> there's no greens or libertarians in local government or at the state level or in congress at all so like you said like building a coalition would be very very difficult mm -hmm. uh, and you see that in like places like the united kingdom where they they just had to build a coalition government a couple years ago between right. different parties and it is more difficult but uh, do you think uh parliamentary systems allow for less polarization like if a prime minister has the ability to dissolve the, the parliament if nothing gets done do you think that allows for more productivity or that or that a statistic on that yeah what i've heard when the when the parliamentary system is working as it should it seems to actually progress more but we've also heard stories about you know, there are these hung parliaments in all parts of the world. Where there's no coalitions, and we're constantly dissolving and holding new elections. It has its drawbacks as well. But right. I would say that there's definite merits for you to take a look at. Well, it's and, not, as, and it's not a, as if a third party will kill the system, political process we have today. And in a parliamentary system, you have this first past the, past the post, so that... Right. Uh, the head of government is always matching the majority party in the Congress or in the, the Parliament, which it doesn't like the United States Constitution essentially sets up all these systems for checks and balances. But it also creates so many barriers to get through to actually get things done, whereas especially now with the polarization we have, we never get anything done if the opposite party it, you know, if Republicans control the Congress and a re Democrat is controlling the White House. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the first pass post system is actually a very harsh system for the political process. If you go back to the UK, the recent elections, the Conservative Party, the leading party at the time, only got around 37% of the vote. And yet they got over 50% of the seats, and now they rule the country, despite the fact that just a little over a third of the country voted for them. Now, how did that happen that they got 50% of the seats? And that goes to the first-past-the-post system. Say you have a parliamentary seat. They, Since they had multiple parties there, let's say 40% of people there voted for the conservative, 20% voted for labor, another... 20 voted for liberal Democrats, right. and then the rest, say, voted UKIP. Right. And because of this first-past-the-post system, whoever gets the most votes wins the seat. So despite only getting 40% of the vote, the conservatives get the seat. And you have 60% of the people there upset because the representative and their vote essentially doesn't count. Right, it's a plurality in a sense. Mm -hmm. Right. So there's there's pros and cons to both systems because it's like do you want a very productive parliament or you know a, a system that can be checked and balanced at all points so that we 
always agree that a party doesn't get to rule unchecked for years. Uh, and so it is interesting, but I think the American system does have merit just if we didn't have the extreme polarization that we do today. Now, do you think, uh, how do you see uh, undisclosed, unlimited campaign financing affecting polarization? It's definitely a huge effect because you have these massive amount of monies and it, the place where it does the most damage is not at the presidential level, but when you could really push funds into these, you know, local elections, the state elections and the local congressional representative elections. We could just have these corporations that come in and just put in, you know, a huge amount of money into these local elections for their point. There's really no chance for, you know, a good discussion, first of all, of what kind of representative we want. And also, it really just comes down to if we can put enough money into this race, then it doesn't really matter what the people want. Just right. Just if we can span the airwaves. Because I think, uh, yeah, at least it, it might be an outdated statistic, but 94% of races are won by the person who spends the most money, which is which is daunting. It's, um, and as well, then that means, yeah, you can just run as many negative campaign ads as you want. Uh, if you have all the money, you can just keep running negative ads and negative press and, uh, and just drown the other candidate and things that may or may not be true. Uh, and I think what it also does is that even on the rare issue where a majority of Americans agree, like uh, expanding background checks, for instance, for, for gun purchases, I believe it's over 80, 90 percent of Americans agree uh, with going forward with universal background checks. The amount of money that's spent uh, to get the parties to vote down their party line debilitizes that. It makes polarization even worse. Mm -hmm. That, yeah. uh, like, so would this, I think, how do we reform the, the finance system, the campaign finance system to not allow for this uh, negative, you know, unlimited uh, funding of elections that allows for as many negative ads as you want and um, essentially buying members of Congress and presidents to not listen to the people. One thing that one of the loudest cries against this is repealing Citizens United case that took place in 2010 that right. essentially said that you could fund a limited amount of money to these super PACs. And there's been no lack of discussion about super PACs in today's election, saying how corrupt it is. And there's definitely a point behind that, because you have this unlimited amount of money that can come in from outside sources that really affect elections. I think that, that, was, that really wasn't as big of an issue until the Citizens United case back in 2010. Right. It was, it was an issue, but now it's just, if you could spend as much money as you want, undisclosed, you can't hold anyone accountable. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting that both parties are really being fed up about this, that uh, I think Donald Trump tapped into it a little bit. He never put out a solid plan on how he would get rid of uh, Citizens United or unlimited, undisclosed campaign funding. 
but as well on the left, Bernie Sanders was largely fueled by this, that uh, young millennials who want desperate change or want change desperately uh, were demanding that this money get out of politics. Right. So the, the, the thirst for it is there, but it's like, will, do you see it actually gonna, is it actually going to change anytime soon? I don't know how much we could really accomplish unless we get somehow pass an act against that and make sure there's no overturn from the Supreme Court. Might even require some kind of constitutional amendment. Right. Or just maybe just a new bench of Supreme Court nominees. Who knows? Right. It's something we definitely need to fight for. It is. Now, since it was the Supreme Court that decided this, it has to be a change in Supreme Court decisions in the future. Or it has to be a constitutional amendment. Those are our only right. options, in a sense. Like, maybe congressional law can limit it to a degree, but they essentially said that money is speech. Mm-hmm. And that whoever has more money can spend it as they want. It's their free speech duty. It's their right. Uh, but it is just... The Supreme Court argued that it, there's no quid pro quo there. There's no, uh, I, there's no evidence that giving money to a candidate gets them access or gets them uh, favoritism in how they want legislation to proceed. But I think we're smarter than that. Yeah. <laughs> that even, like, they said that there, the creation of super PACs and not allowing for candidates to talk to those super PACs, to have any formal affiliation or communication with them, pro- prohibits this kind of corruption. But you could still have a very wealthy person contact that politician and say, you know what, I'm going to give a million dollars to your super PAC. No one will know, but they can still communicate, and then the corruption's right there. So it is uh, a new element of our system that's making the matters even worse. And uh, you you have... these billionaires like the Koch brothers that pledged this year to spend $900 billion or $900 million on the election. But then after all, they, they didn't like Trump very much as the nominee. So then they decided they're going to focus more on local and state elections. Um, and I think it also goes to say that the low voter turnout in the United States is also something that plays into nothing ever getting changed is because if you only get the very partisan people out to vote, then those people are only going to be represented, uh, their candidates, especially at the local levels. Is That's where a lot of stuff gets done. A lot of bills and laws and change happens at the state and local levels because no one's watching them. The mainstream media doesn't focus on them. Um, and I think one thing is that uh, I think 9% of the whole population really chose between Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump as the nominees right. this year. So there 14% of the eligible population. But that shows you that most people don't vote. <laughs> mm-hmm. It's a definite issue in the U.S. In the past U.K. election, you had, for the parliament, you had over... 60% of the people who voted, but here it was for 2012, it was just 
55%, and that was actually down from 20, 2008. And if you even look at states in countries in Scandinavia, they even have higher turnout and a lot less anger at their government. And you look at uh, voting in the primaries, it's it's like 40%, I believe, of people vote. Right? I think, I think it's it's much lower, or is it, much, even, much lower, or yeah. is it even lower than that? Yeah. Because, yeah, like I said, it's that all... It, and actual voting for the candidate that ends up winning is that most people did not vote. Most Republican voters in this primary system did not vote for Donald Trump. Like we were talking about earlier, that plurality voting, that since there were, what, 16 other candidates uh, running, that only a very small percentage of Republicans actually voted for Donald Trump. And now there's not even 50% of the party in, in surveys show that they wanted him for the nominee or they like they even approve of him being their nominee. So it, having that system allows for a minority of people to choose the two people that end up on the ballot. Right. And we have a very, let's say, unique way of nominating our nominees in the U.S. Because on one hand, our party systems, the two individual parties are technically individual companies and they can you know, operate as they want. They're private entities, yeah. Private entities, right. But on the other hand, if they want to uniquely represent their own constituents and people as a whole, they definitely need to reform the process there was. You definitely heard a lot of outrage from Bernie Sanders supporters after Hillary Clinton's nomination. She did get a majority of Democratic voters in the primary but we saw those emails of, you know, the DNC, um, quote unquote, colluding against Bernie Sanders, thinking of attack ads against him. Right. At least expressing favoritism, maybe not concretely, right. but verbally yeah. in inappropriate channels. And while there's no evidence that affected the outcome, definitely a lot of outrage. Right. And on the Republican side, it's really just a mess because. While on the Democratic side, each state allots their delegates proportionally to the vote. Republican side, some states are winner-take-all, others are proportional. It's really just a mess, and because of that mess, Donald Trump could win the nomination without the majority of support. Of right, because yeah, some some states are have statewide delegates, and some states have like congressional district delegates. So it's it's very piecemeal, depending on the state, mm-hmm. and. I think there would be more outrage if the person who wasn't leading in the polls like got the nomination because right. on both sides, like Donald Trump never really got more than thirty percent of like uh, the the lead in most polls, um, and that's like essentially what he got throughout the election is like his polls matched his results, and same with Hillary Clinton, she was always leading in the polls and she ended up getting the nomination. So I think there would be more outrage if the system was allowing for uh, someone to win that wasn't leading. But still, it, go- it, it allows for someone that wasn't chosen by the majority of people, that wasn't actually voted for by most people <laughs> to become the nominee. Uh, so do you think like we should mandate voting like, like Australia does? Do you think that would help? Yeah, there are 
there's a lot of hesitation towards that because people would feel it's a restriction on their, you know, their individual rights. As as much as you have a right to vote, people say you should have the right not to vote as well. But on the other hand, if you look at Australia, it's a lot more effective with their when you have that high of a turnout. I think that they have more approval of their government and the system works better. That's just from offhand accounts, but from what I've read, it seems to work. Right, because, so we need to decide as a society if that's something that we want. Yeah, because one of the pushbacks is you're going to force people to vote who maybe are uninformed and uneducated in politics. But on the flip side, knowing that you must vote come November, come election day, then maybe you're going to be encouraged to pay attention. Mm-hmm. And that could gain encourage more people to be involved. Right. When, really, when, yeah, we only have 60% of people that actually show up on election day. Uh, and maybe some of them aren't even involved, but we can get the, the other 40% uh, if we mandate it. Which it, there's there are pros and cons to it, but it's definitely an interesting solution to get more representation in our voting because, yeah, if, I think if more people are involved in politics, then the rich like the the rich donors can't get away with as much because if everyone's paying attention, then you can't just be as swayed by all the negative ads that you're watching on TV because that candidate has all the funding. And from a few pure ideological perspective, it's the more people you have participating in your democracy, it just feels better because then you have more people, voices heard, and people can actually express how they want their government to run. So just from that standpoint, it, Seems like a good idea. Yeah, I think. Well, there's also a the the Condorcet jury theorem. It's called that. The more people involved in a in a solution or in making a decision, the better that solution uh, is ought to be or will turn out to be. So, uh, but then on the flip side, you get um, other political research that shows most Americans' policy positions are rather flippant. That people don't vote on policy. They vote on, you know, Donald Trump's a racist or Hillary Clinton's a liar or what have you that they don't put in the time and and to actually learn the issues. And then there's also like the thought that the the worse the polarization becomes, the more actually rational it is for someone not to put in the time to learn the information. Uh and that's what we study in politics is that like if if nothing's going to get done if i'm not going to have my voice be heard you become more apathetic and then it's perfectly rational to watch a movie or you know watch something you enjoy than to watch the news and to read papers and to read studies uh and so i think it's like this vicious cycle that then no one is really focusing on the data that People just tune in a little bit, they see the salacious news story, and then they'll vote on that because they think the other person is a bad person or a racist or a bigot or a liar. And so it's, I think it, it goes with our mental 
our psychology that we we want to form these mental shortcuts to have easier decisions when life isn't about black or white when there's a lot of nuance required and our our system sets that sets us up for that by having two parties it allows for these shortcuts but i think like you said at the beginning of the conversation it's it's on us that there needs to be a cultural change that we need to start demanding of ourselves of our media of each other that we actually discuss the issues that we search for unbiased news sources or intellectually honest sources um, and not just listening to the other, the one side of the news story so maybe once we change then media will listen and then maybe we can actually start to get some laws passed that fix campaign finance and fix the gerrymandering and maybe allow for more parties and so I think maybe it's it starts with us. Yeah, then all the, if you just think about it, all the media is is just a reflection of us and what we want and what we can do to change that. We can try to you know, think more critically. We can improve our education system to have you know teach people how to think correctly and think with that. Just remember to always think critically. Yeah, I think, I think it's a good message for your podcast. Yeah, it's almost yeah like this vicious cycle that if like if politicians don't fund education, then people won't ever be educated to think critically and question their own politicians. So it is. It's about education. It's about encouraging each other to have civil discourse. Um, so I guess as in that Bernie Sanders mantra that it, it's like it's on us. It's it's the people that have to begin demanding this. Um, and so I, I wonder how it will go forward since this is such a an interesting election that even though Republicans are not all coalesced around their candidate, uh, Republicans may not even like Trump, but they still hate Hillary. Uh, and Democrats, not all Democrats might like Hillary, but they still hate Trump. So it'll be interesting to see how this election has any effect on polarization if it makes it even worse. I think that's a good segue into one of the biggest buzzwords about polarization here today, which is gerrymandering. And that that word has actually been a while, around a while, even since the early 1800s when it was first mm-hmm. named. Mm-hmm. And for those who haven't heard of it before, essentially that instead of voters choosing representatives, representatives get to choose their voters. Uh, state legislatures in the majority of states get to choose the voting lanes for both congressional houses and you know, state legislatures. Because so of what, census, like every 10 years, they get to, you have to redraw the districts according to census data. Right. That is right. Yeah, so every 10 years, there'll be usually a redrawing in the state. And what that'll turn out to be, whatever party in power will look at the demographics of the state and see, okay, how can we get the most representatives from our party elected and then the least from the other party? 
So how that works, that you have 60% Democrats in a country or, and then 40% in, you know, in that state total. They can actually manipulate it so that the, a perfect representation would be six Democrats to, and then four, Demo, four Republicans sent to Congress. How it actually could work, though, is they can manipulate it so that they pack all the Democrats into a few congressional locations and then have a slim or a slight Republican majority in the others. So there's actually more Republican representatives despite the fact that there are less Republican voters. Right. So even if there were a opinion change in the country, that's like it. It gives the party who is in power, who is in power at the time of the census, an advantage for the next ten years. That and then if they are still in power in ten years, they'll get to keep redrawing the districts how they want. Um, that's why I think it's interesting because even uh, in like 2012, which Barack Obama won by a, a sizable electoral margin, uh, and even this year if Hillary Clinton wins sizably, no one expects the House of Representatives to change. Even if, like, the Senate, the Democrats have a slight lead in right now because there's no drawing districts there. It's statewide elections. But since the the House of Representatives districts, the, those congressional districts, were drawn in 2010 by a massively Republican wave of state legislatures, of... Uh, of uh, representation in the house there's no chance practically that the house will switch back unless there was like an extreme democratic wave of some sort that could uh beat that gerrymandering mm -hmm. but even though republicans are in power and have been really accused most of it both parties are at fault with this yeah. you have democrats in illinois right. drawing these outrageous boundaries that stretch from the lake shore all the way out to the suburbs and then you have Republicans in North Carolina that just creating these crazy shapes of districts and no one could look at this map and say these are natural boundaries of how voters are grouped together ideally how it would look is people who live together and with similar neighborhoods are all part of the same congressional right. district yeah and I think um what this goes back to saying is that there's a there's an organization called Represent Us that's uh, trying to start the movement at the ground level because if our elected officials are there because of gerrymandering and they're funded by only rich people and they're only listening to those wealthy donors and not the people, then we need to, like we said, start the change with us that we have to start at, like petitioning for ballot initiatives and for constitutional amendments that, uh, like in Illinois this year, they're trying to get um, an independent commission to exist to redraw districts so that the parties in Congress or the parties in state legislatures don't get to draw the districts. But uh, and some states are actually have actually done this. I think it's uh, like Washington, California yeah. I think maybe Arizona or there's a few states that have these independent commissions where it's putting the equ equality of opportunity back in democracy that it no party has a favor like a uh, 
an advantage right from the beginning. Right. It's the representatives should be a representative of how the voters vote. Yeah. But I think that like the moral of this issue is that we can complain about the media, we can complain about the politicians being funded, but in the end it's it's gonna be it's we wish it was on them, but you know, it's rational for the politician to to want all the money they can get because they don't want to lose their reelection, and it's rational for the media outlets to listen to how what gets them ratings and post salacious stories because that's what what gets viewership. But they're only going to keep doing that if we allow them to. Mm-hmm. That we have to start, uh, you know, writing, signing our name on petitions to get these independent commissions and to uh, overturn Citizens United by demanding constitutional amendments or uh, putting it on national ballots or those are the ways that we still have power uh, even if our 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 democratic power has been taken away from us in gerrymandering and and campaign finance laws that there's still ways for us to make this democracy more fair mm-hmm. so I think that's the way going forward yeah. So I think there is hope. I think there's hope there, left. <laughs> there's definite hope. We, as bad as things are now, we look back at how far our country has come. There's some high hopes. Exactly. Uh, so thank you for discussing with me today. Thank you for having me on. Uh, I hope to have you on in future episodes. I uh, come back. I think we discussed many great uh, details of the system and how hopefully it will get better in the future. Mm -hmm. So thank you for joining me and thank you for listening.